Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. (sighs) The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're so glad that you're here. As always, I am your host, Lauren Ash, and as always, I am joined by my co-hostess with the most S, Christy Oxborough. How you feeling? I'm great. Good. That was a really long eight, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know if I believed it, but I feel I feel fine. It oh, was such a it see, was that such, was a step down yeah. from great. <laughs> it was such a long eight. It was almost a yeah. nine. I can't. I don't. I've had some vodka. The point is, right off the top, I ah, they're not good. <laughs> they're not good. <laughs> but they can only go down from here. I'm kidding. Ah, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Listen, uh, dear listeners, Halloween is over. What yeah. does that mean? Ho, ho, hold on to your hats. The holidays are upon us. And I know that people like to get all up in arms about when we're supposed to start Christmas and when is too early and when is not. Listen, here's the thing. We lived through a global pandemic, dear listeners, and uh, I had a Christmas tree up in this house for a year. To be honest, I've had one up in this house for about three years at this point. It's in my spare bedroom. It's nobody's business. It doesn't hurt anyone. What else do you put in the Christmas room? <laughs> Thank you kindly. Well, Christmas bedding, Christmas cushions, it uh, doesn't matter. Um, oh. But my point is, is that whatever brings you joy, whatever you want to do in the privacy, or may I say, privacy of your own home is your business. And uh, I'm jazzed. I'm jazzed that we're into the season. Yes! Oh, uh, watching a movie on Halloween, I swear I could hear the tick of a clock, <laughs> and then I'm fairly certain I wasn't awake at midnight, but all of a sudden, that next morning, 
I I felt refreshed. Mm. I was ready to go. Mm -hmm. I was bouncing out of bed. Um, I don't dislike Halloween. Halloween is fine. Uh, but but Christmas is my jam. Same. And I I love it so much. I love everything about it. Gift giving is my love language. We yes. discussed this. Yes. Um, and so I I live for picking out the right gifts for the right people. And so it's been difficult to try and like research and write notes when my brain is like, you just want to put on a Christmas movie in the background and and see about like Googling what kind of Christmas ideas do you have for these particular people. Yep. That's what you really want to do. Yep. And then it's like, oh, I should get this. I should get it now before it sells out because there's going to be a mad rush for it in a week. Is it? No. You never know. You it's never the know. lie I tell myself so well, that I hurry up and buy it. Well, all jokes aside, dear listeners, TrueCrewMerch.com, there is some holiday items that are officially up on there, and I would suggest ordering sooner than later. Uh, there's, sure. They have some kind of estimates and stuff like that, but I think – I think especially if you're not in the good old U.S. of A., I would suggest uh, making orders truly as soon as possible, certainly before the end of November. And may I add, oh, what's that? Oh, my one of my multiple beverages is sitting on one of these beautiful new coasters. That's right. There's a coaster. Each one is a is a, one of the seasons of our art. Uh, and if you buy all four, you get a discount. Of course. It comes off at checkout. Doesn't matter. I'm really exploring uh, how to make discounts and whatnot. Um, we have yeah. our our Bert and Mary uh, pieces. We have our, I'm calling it our chuckleheads is the stuff with just the cartoon you and I. Um, yeah. There's ornaments. There's a wine tumbler. There is, uh, again, the, the coasters. There's so much in there. So, again, check that out if you're interested. And please do buy sooner than later. Uh, if you would like it to arrive in time for the holidays, I have been shopping like a bandit. I have, and and hey. as you know, I I kind of like can go back and forth. This year, I'm on top of it. I shouldn't oh. say that. That's a ballsy thing to say. But I'm knee deep, knee deep. And nothing makes me happier than the position of being knee deep in Christmas shopping. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Now, before we move yeah. on, I need to ask you, what you drinking over there? Oh, uh, I'm just doing a water and a Coke for sure. today. Just to try and, like, keep my brain uh, focused. Focused because there's caffeine, but not too over the place because it's a, it's a giant sugar-filled drink. I know there is a lot of sugar in it, but you know what I mean. Well, good news. I'm making up for you over here. I have a water. I have yeah. a Diet Coke. I have a Pomplamousse LaCroix. I have a Sparkling Lime LaCroix. And I have a Peach and Orange Vodka. That's a Kettle One. It's a two-in-oneer uh, that I've mixed with the Lime LaCroix. This is a record. I mean, I have one, two, three, four, five. I have five beverages on the table. Now, technically, the Lime LaCroix is just, is just the mixer, but I, it's unprecedented. It's unprecedented. You're, you're like the little girl from Signs. Oh, I never Just saw it. glasses everywhere. Ah. Yes. You didn't see Signs. No, I huh. saw the sign. I can't. I can't. It's always something. <laughs> I No, I didn't see it. I didn't see it. Huh. You I know mean, what I did, I though? I saw it once. 
But wait a minute. It was, fine. was that the one with Marky? Which one was the M. Night Shyamalan uh, with Marky? I don't know. That, he did that I think one. Si- Signs was the. Oh, Signs yeah. was Mel Gibson, wasn't it? Yes, you're right. Because si- Signs else. was like 99, early 2000s. That's, that's right. The one with Marky was like, hey, everybody. There's something in the air. We don't know what it is. <gasps> on the train. They're on the train traveling. Zoe Deschanel is in it. Fuck. Remember? I did actually see that recently. What was that called? Well, The Happening. The Happening. Is that right? I think so. I like that you got it from me saying, there's something in the air. Uh, uh, it's be- Well, the joke is, it's because you know I love a disaster movie. You do. And I ran out. I was like, I need another one. And I Googled. I'm like, what are some of the great disaster movies? And for some reason, lists, multiple lists said that movie. And I was like, I've never seen it. It's dull. Oh. Didn't care for it. Didn't right. care for it. Made some choices. Um, it's fine. Uh, but uh, again, also with signs, I mean, I saw it the one time when it first came out. And I haven't seen it since. Sure. Well, I like Joaquin the, the Phoenix. Girl. Oh, is he in that? I don't remember. I didn't see it. <laughs> you didn't see it. Stop asking. <laughs> but I like that the girl with the cups really, you know, that respond. You responded she, to that. She has. She's just always like, I need a drink of mm-hmm. water, and she just had water cups everywhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That I was like a whole this. thing. I love that my. <laughs> I love that I'm like, don't say more. You don't want to spoil it for her. Spoil it for her? I don't a know what year old movie. <laughs> I don't think she's going to see it. I don't know that Look. that's the one that I'm like, don't spoil it. I'll get to it eventually. I love that I just made the assumption you would see it or be interested because it's like an alien-like thing. Yeah, I mean, that's not, you're right. That's not out of the realm. But also the cast, Mel Gibson. Okay. Wow. Joaquin Phoenix, mm-hmm. Rory Culkin, oh, Abigail Breslin. Shut your lips. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> listen, Mel Gibson. It's tough because he. We know he's problematic. He uh, is. But he's also stars in one of my favorite Christmas movies of all time. Oh, Daddy's Home too. Daddy's Home too. <laughs> and dear listeners, if you're recoiling, if you're saying she's lost her mind, I haven't. She hasn't. It's, Amazing. <laughs> Do you need to have seen Daddy's Home to understand yes. Daddy's Home too? Do you think Correct. you should? Okay, I would say I would say I think so. Yes, because Daddy's Home helps build the bond. Sure, that if you go right. into the second one without having seen how that like the transition of how they got to where they are at Fair. the beginning of the second one, then you're just like. This is interesting. Whereas you're like, they've come so far. That's true. You know? I guess for me also, like, Mel Gibson is so superfluous to that movie. It's like, it could have been anybody in that role. Like, I don't really 100%. care about him being there. It's everybody else. It's solid. It's John Lithgow. John Lithgow is so It's John Cena. In that movie. It's, yeah. it's Will Ferrell and, of course, our boy Mawkey. Mark Wahlberg. Yeah. I, I can't say his name not in a quasi-Boston accent. Don't come for me if you're from Massachusetts. It's it's a caricature of what he sounds like. Of course. Look, I I did not know what to expect going into Daddy's Home and then Daddy's Home too. But what a delight! What a goddamn delight! Right? And I absolutely agree. Last year, 
um, I decided because when when I when I watch Christmas movies, sometimes if I'm watching them at night, my husband is there, and if it's my pick, I get to pick whatever I want. And I know he doesn't. I was gonna say hates, but he doesn't care for Christmas movies, with exception to Die Hard. But I try and wait so I'm not too early on picking them. But last year, early November, I picked Daddy's Home as my pick. And then he got a who knows what he picked the next day. Then the next day it was my pick. And Daddy's Home too. Whoops, we've transitioned into Christmas. Oh, shoot. And then I just had to go Christmas with the rest of my picks for the rest of December. And that's just it. Yep. And it was it was a beautiful transition, and it was a strong start. Oh yeah, because that's it for me. I want to start strong, and I want to end strong, and the, it it's a wave crest in a trough situation in the middle, because you could get great, but you don't know. It's rolling the dice with the TV Christmas movies, but I live for them. Yeah, and I learned today that Freddie Prinze Jr. is going to be in one. Oh, and I couldn't be more happy. That Lindsay Lohan one's coming out soon. That's like right. I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting a little overwhelmed with how excited I'm becoming. Sure. Like I, I, I made a list of all the Hallmark, Lifetime, etc., uh, Netflix, all of those kinds of ones that are going to be coming out, and I, I printed it off for myself with the plan of like make sure to check so you know the dates they're coming out and that kind of thing. Uh, and I saw the paper and my husband was like, oh, are you going to keep up on that and make sure, you know, that you know when each of them comes out? And I'm like, I'm actually going to write the dates in maybe tomorrow as like a treat. <laughs> and then I realized after that I was like, that's not a treat for most people. It's a treat for me. And it's again. for me. And uh, what a gift. No one's getting hurt. No. No one's getting hurt. Not a single person. Nope. And do I need to look through that list? To find out what movies come out between now and my birthday so that I can pick which ones I want to watch on my birthday. Like a psychopath? A little bit, yes. But I have to go non-Christmas with the final movie of the night that I watch uh, at the end of the night before bed. Because the Enchanted sequel comes out. Yes. Right before my birthday. And I'm like, well, shit. There were years there where i watched enchanted every year on my birthday and so i was like fuck well really yeah i didn't know i really i really got into it like hard like there (laughs) is it took me by surprise i did not think i would be as charmed by it as i was it was one of those like let's go see a movie sure let's give it a shot and what a delight it turned out to be so i'm hoping for the best for this second one but uh yeah. We'll see. We'll hey. See. Absolutely. But look, part of the fun is is building the playlist mm-hmm. for when you sit in bed. Yeah. Or on the couch. It depends on my mood for that day, but just eating trash <laughs> <laughs> and consuming Christmas. That's all that's all I want. Yeah. And is then it- if I happen to also be Getting a little online shopping done. Oof. Yeah. yeah. So it's not a full Christmas raccoon day, but it's, it's adjacent. 
Yes. The well, and I can't be full trash can because I have to have Wi-Fi. <laughs> I can't just I can't just sit and watch the movies. I I can't do that. Have you seen the clip where there's a dumpster and there's like a sliding door on the side and they slide it open and there's the little <laughs> raccoon? I can't. Yeah. It's the greatest thing I've ever seen. Oh, oh there are there are very specific clips <laughs> that if I see them, it doesn't matter how many times I've seen them. If I'm like scrolling through something and I see it, I have to stop. Oh, yeah. Yep. Like there are ones, it, a lot of animal ones mm -hmm. I will do that with. Um, but the one <laughs> that kills me, it, you showed it to me the first time. And I've seen it so many times since. And I will watch it entirely every time. It's the young couple sitting in like a food court or something. And the woman's like, do you know what he did today? He held a door open for another girl. And the, guy, the guy's like, she was in a wheelchair. <laughs> like, it's just, I, I assume it's a bit, and that the I, woman yeah. wasn't really uh, yeah. angry. But it's so funny. I can't ever, like, the reaction of the person that's filming it, it's all of it. I love it so much. It makes me laugh, and I will watch it every time. Holding in my laughter because I want to hear the gasp when the friend hears he held a door open for someone else. The look on his face when he's like, has no idea what to do and is like, but wait, what? Like, so funny. Listen, the last one I have to reference before we move on is, yeah. uh, I sent one to Christy recently and I just said, this is us. And I have watched it probably no fewer than 25 times. It sure. makes me howl every time. And it is a <laughs> it's a video of a woman who is at a pumpkin patch with some friends and uh, her boyfriend. And she's there's like a, a whole display of small pumpkins and she's trying to pick up two pumpkins to make like pumpkin poops. <laughs> <laughs> to, just, to just hold them as pumpkin boobs. And you can hear the friend who's filming going like, maybe you shouldn't touch them. I don't think you're meant to touch them. Maybe you should put them down, like trying to whatever. Because as she's doing this, her boyfriend, unbeknownst to her, is on a knee. He's, a, he's yeah. about to propose. And she's basically, she's ruining her own proposal because she had to do a pumpkin boobs bit. And I was just like, yeah. this is so something that would happen to you or I. It is complete. Yeah. And she's laughing at herself so hard. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I love that. I love What that I love is that could not have been a better moment for him to decide, is he sure? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is what you're signing because up for, bud. Yeah, because it's like, this is going to be it. This is going to be it for life. And, and you should be so uh, lucky, you know my friend. He you chose be so lucky. <laughs> he stayed on a knee and he chose joy. He did. Is what he did. He did. And it, I'm happy it was for just, both of them. It's how long it took her to pick up the pumpkins. <laughs> it's how long, like, after she was trying to, like, fumble and put them down. Like, she's laughing and she's looking around, not noticing. Nope. That he's been on a knee for, like, a almost a solid minute. Oh, yeah. Just... Waiting, and you think it's not long, but it's like a long time where you're just like, "Oh my god, I think he's trying to propose to you." What right people now. forget is that one minute in real time is eternal. Yeah, it's a long time. When it's something like that, it's a long time. 
It what is. A yeah. What a gift. But, oh my God. So funny. And like he he's not bothered by it. He's just which he shouldn't be. But it was just that beautiful moment where he was like, Yep. Yep. This is just who she is. It's like, yeah. Yeah. And you love her. And you love each you know? other. You're a good yeah. match. It's um, a beautiful thing. Listen, uh, well, listen, before we get into the episode, which is, of course, the Unsolved Mysteries Death in a Vegas Motel episode, uh, we would be remiss if we didn't address this. There has been an update in a very prolific true crime case. Of course, we're talking about the Delphi murders. Um, this is something we've covered on the show in the past, and I know that uh, Christy has a has an update for us. I do. Fantastic. Update. That was update. unnecessary. I liked it. So... For those who may not recall or didn't know anything about it to begin with, just a very quick bare bones recap about the Delphi case in general. Uh, on February 13th, 2017, 13-year-old Abby Williams and 14-year-old Liberty Libby German went for a hike along the Monon High Bridge Trail in Delphi, Indiana. When a family member went to pick the girls up, they were nowhere to be found. Hours later, Abby and Libby were reported missing. The next day, their bodies were found in a wooded area about half a mile from the bridge. Their cause of death has never been released. During the investigation, police found a video on Libby's cell phone of a man in a blue jacket, blue jeans, and a hat walking behind the girls. In the video, the man can be heard telling them, quote, go down the hill. So a police sketch was released in 2017, a second one was released in 2019, but no one was formally arrested, despite there being numerous suspects. Then on October 26, 2022, police took 50-year-old Richard Allen into custody. And if that name does not seem familiar to you, don't worry, Allen was not a suspect that the police had publicly spoken about before. So no one knew about him anyway. Uh, Alan was a pharmacy technician at the CVS in Delphi and had no previous criminal record. He moved to Delphi in 2006 and was living in a house near where the bodies were found. He was formally charged on October 28th with two counts of murder and police announced the arrest in a press conference on Halloween. According to one of Alan's neighbors, Police allegedly searched Allen's home two weeks before his arrest, focusing on a fire pit. According to CNN, a neighbor said the officers went into Allen's home and left with bundles of cloth or clothing, a stack of books, a shopping bag, and a shoebox. A tow truck also arrived on scene and took Allen's black SUV. As of November 3rd, which is the day we're recording, uh, police have still not disclosed how Abby and Libby were killed or what evidence they have against Allen. Richard Allen has entered a not guilty plea. There is a pretrial hearing slated for January 13th, 2023, and a trial scheduled to start March 20th. Uh, Libby's grandparents, Mike and Becky Patty, said that they have had gone to the CVS to print photos for the funeral, and Alan not only helped them with the photos, he also gave them the photos for free. Mike described it as, quote, he's hiding in plain sight. 
And one other thing I learned about Richard Allen that I find incredibly unsettling, if he did in fact kill those girls. Allen's wife posted a photo on Facebook of herself and her husband sitting together in what appears to be possibly their home. The photo was posted December 2021. Far in the background, hanging on the wall behind Richard's head, is the police sketch that was released in 2019. So did he hang it on the wall as a trophy of some sort? Or did the wife legitimately not know and hung it up because they live in a small town and she thought, I should remember that face in case I see him? I don't know either way, but seeing him in a photo where that sketch is hung up is unsettling. He looks nothing like it, by the way, nor should he because... That particular sketch was based off of something completely different. Right. So it makes sense he wouldn't look like that one. Wow. But uh, unsettling, I would say. Yeah, to say the least. My God. Yeah. So that is it as of now. I, I don't know if they will ever say more details or if we have to wait till like after kind of a court situation or what's going on. I don't know. We're in for a long wait. I just want to know what made them think of him. Like what, what tip did they get? What did they find? What was it that made them go? Oh yeah, this guy. Yeah. Because at this point to arrest someone out of nowhere and charge them with murder they have to have something. I thought that he was connected because, you know, there was that piece of that, that like the the guy who lived right close to where it happened. Yes. I something thought there was Logan? something about the two of them knowing each other, but I could be wrong. But in a small oh, it's town, more than possible. lots of people could know each other. So it feels like there would need to be something a little bit more than that. Yeah. I think they said there's like 3,000 people in yeah. Delphi. So it's, so it's small. But I have so many questions. I mean, I mean, I don't, I don't think I want to know how they died. Yeah. But that will come out, I'm sure, at some point. I just, my big thing is, how did you zero in on him? Yeah. And what do you have that made you so sure that you have officially arrested him now? Yeah. A lot of questions. And if it was him. Does the wife know? Is this a complete shock to her? Right. Great question. So many questions. Well, listen, I mean, this was a case, obviously, that has, like, gripped the true crime community, the internet. So, obviously, it would be amazing to see justice served. I hope that, um, you know, that that we see that day. And if, if he did, in fact, kill them, that uh, that, that is proven in court. As it should be. So uh, stay tuned for more, I guess. But that is the latest update in that situation. Um, I mean, again, I wish there was more to say, but I mean, this is this is up. This is you know up to the up to the minute. Oh yeah, up to the minute. Yeah, the press con- conference was just days ago, and yeah, nothing much was said there. Well, the police anyway, have been so, so tight-lipped in this in general that it didn't feel like it was out of character for them that. I, I I was looking into it a little bit, and I was just like, yeah, they didn't really say very much, but they haven't thus far. So, and I assume they can't 
Yeah. But who knows? It's just, it's going to drive me crazy. And I guess I just have to wait till March, April, when they're doing a trial to maybe find out more. But they might, because it the victims are children, they might not be as open with what comes out about the court every day. They might be like, well, we're not telling anybody until it's over. Right. Which is also fair. I mean, it's 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 a horrific, yes. horrific crime. So we will keep you posted, dear listeners, as we learn more. Um, but for now, we're going to get back to Unsolved Mysteries, Death in a Vegas Motel. If you have not watched yet, never fear. We're going to get you up to speed right now. Buffalo Jim was a Las Vegas legend who built his own auto repair shop from the ground up. He was also a wrestling promoter known for his larger-than-life personality that got him voted the most colorful character in Vegas in 2005. But just three years later, in April 2008, Buffalo Jim was found dead alone in a motel room. With no obvious signs of a struggle, the coroner ruled Jim's death an accident. But if Jim died alone, then how do you explain the logs that proved that someone entered Jim's room less than 10 minutes before Jim even got to the motel? And why was his car missing only for it to be returned hours later, completely wiped of any fingerprints? And could Jim's death be linked to any of his public feuds? Well, Christy Oxborough investigates. <laughs> yeah, look, I watched this episode once the day it came out. I watched it again to take better notes um, after that. And... I've been living in it for a week, and I'll tell you, I still have all those questions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's still a lot of questions, but that's literally why it's called Unsolved Mysteries, right? Yes. So, James Christopher Barrier, later known as Buffalo Jim, was born on March 22, 1953, in Cleveland, Ohio. While the nickname didn't come into play until later in his life, for the sake of clarity... And keeping it all together, I'm just going to refer to him as Buffalo Jim or simply Jim throughout the episode. Great. When he was nine, Jim's parents took him on a trip to Las Vegas, Nevada, and Jim was so taken with the city that he vowed to return in the future. Sadly, Jim's childhood was particularly rough. I don't have the exact details, but I do know he left school after the fifth grade and that he was mostly on his own from the age of 12. Oh, wow. Due to his natural knack with vehicles, Jim started working at various gas stations and garages in the Midwest when he was just 13. In 1971, 18-year-old Jim moved to Vegas, his lifelong dream. Lifelong, 18-year long, 9-year, I guess, technically long. Right. Um, he started fixing vehicles from his own van. He built a reputation for himself, and by 1977, Jim signed a 30-year lease for an auto shop on Industrial Road called Allstate Auto and Marine Electric. And it was that very shop where Jim was given his nickname. At some point in the 70s, a drunk tourist from Texas came into Jim's shop, and he was so taken with Jim's larger-than-life personality that the tourist said, he once had sex with a buffalo, and Jim could very well be their love child. <laughs> <laughs> and somehow, the name Buffalo Jim stuck. 
Known for his amazing mechanic skills, as well as his gregarious personality, Buffalo Jim's business boomed, and soon celebrities headed to Allstate just for the chance to meet him. The walls of his shop were covered with photos from these encounters, including such famous people as Tony Curtis, Muhammad Ali, Mike Tyson, Wayne Newton, The Undertaker, and a certain gentleman named Dwayne Johnson. Oh, hello. In 1996, Jim started a wrestling school called Buffalo Wrestling Federation, where students trained twice a week. Jim put on live shows at the Silver Nugget and the Orleans, uh, which were filmed for his cable TV show called Jim Wars, uh, which aired on Friday nights. And if being a business owner, an auto mechanic, and a wrestling promoter wasn't enough, Jim also wrote a weekly column about auto repair for the Las Vegas Mercury. In 2005, Jim was voted Las Vegas's most colorful character by the Las Vegas Revu Review Journal. And in 2008, Jim was in the process of finalizing a contract for a reality show based on his life. Huh. And while Allstate was doing well financially, due to issues with a neighboring business, which we will get into later, Jim was planning to move his business to a new building on Sahara Avenue. Regarding his personal life, in 1979, Jim met Roxanne Pollock. The couple remained together for 21 years, during which time they had four daughters. Jessica in 1982, Jennifer around 1984, Elise around 1987, and Jerica in 1992. They bought their dream house near Sunrise Mountain in 1998, but due to the stressful feud that Jim was in, which again... We'll get into later. Jim and Roxanne separated, and she and the girls moved to Seattle to be closer to family. In January 2001, Jerrica returned to Vegas to live with her father and even joined him on his wrestling show. Now, we're going to get to the date in question. On Saturday, April 5th, 2008, around 7.20 p.m., Jim told his daughter, Jerrica, he was going to meet a friend. The Unsolved Mysteries episode specifically stated that Jim was meeting a friend for dinner. Uh, Jerrica tried to persuade Jim to stay home, but he promised he'd be back around midnight. In fact, they made a deal. If Jim wasn't back on time, he'd give his daughter $100. So around 9.30 p.m., Jerrica texted Jim, but didn't get a response. She tried calling him at 9.41 p.m., but the call went straight to voicemail, as though someone had rejected the call. Jerrica called again at 9.50 p.m., and the phone rang multiple times before then going to voicemail. The next morning, Jerrica noticed that Jim wasn't home, so she tried calling him again, but Jim didn't answer. That same morning, around 11.30 a.m., a housekeeper at the Motel 6 on Boulder Highway knocked on room 105. When she didn't get a response, the housekeeper opened the door and noticed a man asleep on the bed. According to the Unsolved Mysteries episode, the housekeeper checked the room again at 12.30 and then a third time at 1.10. But according to the coroner's report, the housekeeper first checked at 11 a.m. and then didn't check again until 1.10 p.m. So they're saying it only happened twice. I don't know uh, which we're going to go for. Probably the 
official coroner's report. Um, when the housekeeper opened the door at 110, at this point, she has to clean the room. So she calls out to Jim and then physically shakes him. And when she got no response, she ran to the motel office and called 911. Paramedics arrived and said that Jim was beyond resuscitation. A coroner was dispatched at 2.10 p.m. and Jim was officially pronounced dead at 2.30 p.m. It was exactly two weeks after Jim's 55th birthday. He was described as larger than life, indomitable, and a source of light. Jim brought the excitement and was a real character and a natural showman. So, according to surveillance cameras at the Motel 6, Jim entered the office at 8.22 p.m. He rented one room and told the clerk that there would be two occupants and that he only needed it for one night. The next morning, Jim was found lying face up on the west bed on top of a comforter with two pillows under his head. His blue shirt was unbuttoned and his pants were around his ankles, so he was nude from the waist down. Around 2.30 p.m., the coroner called Jerrica to notify her of her father's death. But since Jerrica was only 15 at the time, the coroner requested to speak with an adult, so he talked to Jerrica's sister, Elise, who was 20 at the time. Elise said that Jim had left home around 7.30 p.m. the night before, but he didn't say who he was going with or where he was going. So she added... Um, she also added, quote, the crazy horse people set this up, but did not elaborate. We will get into crazy horse later on. When Jerrica and Elise arrived at the motel, they were given a manila envelope with Jim's personal effects, including his cell phone, the receipt for the motel room, a garage door opener, keys to Jim's Rolls Royce, and Jim's wallet, which was missing his ID. Jim was also known for carrying large sums of cash, usually at least $1,000, but the only money found at the scene was a $1 bill that was folded in half. Police also gave the girls an empty prescription pill bottle, which was found in Jim's pocket. The police said that three green pills were found in the bottle. Jerrica said it was likely the Valium that had been prescribed to Jim to help him sleep. The label on the bottle was for a heart medication called Norvac, um, and it expired in 2003. According to the coroner's report, the pills were in fact diazepam, which is essentially Valium. However, the coroner said the pill bottle was not labeled at all. So I don't know who claimed it was labeled or how someone said it had a heart medication label on it when the coroner said there was no label, unless they're two different bottles. I don't know. The room had two double-sided, double-sized beds, a nightstand and a dresser with a TV on top of it. There were two plastic cups containing water sitting on the nightstand. Jim's daughters said that Jim only drank bottled water, which may indicate that Jim was not alone when he died. One preliminary report indicated that there were no signs of a heart attack, the coroner stated that Jim had died from cocaine intoxication and cardiomyopathy, which is an inflammation of the heart muscle, also known as heart disease. His death was ruled an accident that occurred between 7 and 9 p.m. on April 5th, 
there was no sign of foul play. You'll also love that I, in that moment, just realized that I skipped over my disclaimer. I don't think I read a disclaimer, did I? You did not. I did not. So we're (laughs) already into it, so I'll get into it. Uh, This episode will contain mentions of substances and substance abuse, so trigger warning for those who need it. So I knew something was off. I'm in a, see, I'm thinking about Christmas. You're doing great. This is is where I'm at. So the toxicology report showed traces of cocaine in Jim's system. At the scene, a white powdery substance was found on Jim's shirt and beard, but it was never tested. So we don't know if it was in fact cocaine and if so, how pure it might have been. No illicit drugs or drug paraphernalia were found in the room. Unhappy with the autopsy results, Jim's family hired Rexine Worrell, an independent pathologist, uh, to perform a second autopsy. Dr. Worrell promised to give the family video, audio, photographs, and notes when the autopsy was complete. However, when she was done, Dr. Worrell told them, quote, I need to hold on to the file in case it goes to court. The family paid that doctor $3,000 to perform the autopsy, and in the end, all she would say was that Jim died from a cocaine overdose. And from what I can tell, to this day, the doctor still hasn't released any information to the family. Jim's daughters said they never saw him drink or do any drugs, but we know that Jim had a substance abuse problem, specifically with cocaine, back in the 80s. Jim's friends and family said he overcame his past and that he had been clean for years. The family said Jim gave up drugs when his first daughter was born in 1982, but some friends said that Jim had been known to party with his professional wrestling friends up until the year 2000, and some close friends even claimed Jim would occasionally party heavily up until 2005. Uh, Jim's family requested that his body be exhumed so that hair samples could be tested to prove whether Jim had been frequently using illicit drugs. The Clark County Coroner's Office said the body could only be exhumed at the request of law enforcement for a criminal prosecution. So is it possible that Jim met up with a friend to party that night and took more than he was used to? Or is it possible that whatever drugs they were doing were purer or more dangerous than they realized? Sure. There was no sign of a struggle, so it seems possible that Jim took the drugs voluntarily. Uh, So it is possible that Jim's death was in fact an accident. However, if Jim was alone, then why did he tell the front desk clerk there would be two people in his room? And why were there two cups of water on the nightstand? if there weren't, in fact, two people. But who could the other person be? Well, according to Jim's cell phone, a woman named Lisa called Jim at 7.30 p.m. and left a voicemail asking him to call her back. Then there was a phone call between Jim and Lisa's number at 7.40 p.m. that lasted 7 minutes and 47 seconds. Lisa called Jim again at 9 or 9.30 p.m., leaving a voicemail asking if Jim was okay. Jerrica called Lisa's number and asked if Lisa knew Buffalo Jim. Lisa said she did not and hung up. Ten days after Jim's death, police were finally able to track 
Lisa down and interview her. Lisa said she had been friends with Jim for 10 years and that she had contacted him because she had a friend in town that was looking to sell his Harley motorcycle. She said the friend was from Arizona and that they needed the money. She said that she met with Jim at a gas station on Charleston Boulevard and that the two of them went to the Motel 6 together. On the surveillance footage that showed Jim in the office getting to the room, Jim is seen leaving the building after getting his keycard, and seconds later, he walks past the door and a woman walks quickly behind him. According to Lisa, while in the room, they played a, quote, sexual fantasy game while Jim was doing a lot of cocaine and acting paranoid. Jim then began convulsing and clutched his chest with both of his hands, which made Lisa panic and left. She claims she took a cab back to the gas station where she left her car, and at 9.30 p.m. she called Jim's cell phone to check on him. The police have said they were able to, quote, verify the details of her statements, dates, places, and times. I assume that means they found the cab that Lisa took. I could be wrong. The police captain spoke with Lisa and said, quote, there's no indication that anything she did or did not do was illegal. And the weird thing is, Lisa first mentioned the reason she called Jim was to help an anonymous friend sell his Harley. And then later, she told police that she went to the motel with Jim to socialize, and the Harley was just never mentioned again. And I don't know what kind of sexual games they were playing, but I can confirm, according to the medical examiner, there was no semen found at the scene. And according to sources, this kind of behavior wasn't unusual for Jim, as he had been known to meet women at various motels, including that very same Motel 6. A curious thing worth noting, according to the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department major incident log, they were dispatched at 2.50 p.m. They arrived on scene at 3.21 and cleared the scene by 4.23. The officer who wrote the report, whose name I don't know, stated that at 9.30, on the day the body was found, someone from the criminalistics lab said that she had new information about the case. She said the victim was in a publicized feud and that she had been advised by her supervisor to seal the evidence bag as it was now considered to be a high-profile case. The officer then met with this woman from the crime lab at the motel, where they were told that room 105 had not been cleaned by motel staff yet. The officer then got a key for the room, put seals on the door and window, and brought the key back to the evidence room. So it feels like someone tried to take the case seriously. But from what I can tell, even after this report, the room was never checked for fingerprints or, di or DNA. And then while we're at it, other things that make me believe this case was only ever treated as an accident. Police gave the victim's personal belongings to his daughter's instead of keeping them to analyze them in literally any way. The white substance on Jim's beard and shirt was never tested. 
neither corner, because remember there was the original corner and the one that the daughters paid, neither one swabbed Jim's nasal passages to determine if he had willingly ingested the cocaine or not. If Jim went to that room to get high, there was no trace of cocaine anywhere in that room. It's almost as though a second person was there. The police report listed two cell phones being found in the room. Based on the descriptions, neither were Jim's phone, which was given to his daughters, which means that's three cell phones in the room. One of the other phones can be seen in crime scene photos, but no one looked into who that phone might belong to. And if you thought it belonged to the deceased, why didn't you give it with the rest of the stuff? Yeah. It just doesn't make sense. Uh, Jim's garage door opener was found in the room, even though he always kept it in the car. Also doesn't make sense to bring it in the room at all. Jim's car mysteriously vanished from the parking lot. When Jerrica and Elise were at the motel, they asked about Jim's car. The police said they weren't sure. The girls drove around the parking lot, but Jim's Rolls Royce was nowhere to be found. So they filed a report with the police. Just three hours later, around 5.30 p.m., the car was discovered in the motel parking lot, parked behind the office. Jim's daughters were adamant that the car was not there when they searched the parking lot. When police checked the car, it was so clean that there was no hair or fingerprints found inside. There are also uh, consistencies about what Jim's daughters have stated publicly. It's a small detail. It probably doesn't matter. But when I find it, I have to share it. Jennifer said that Jim was fully clothed when his body was found, which I'm sure was said to protect her father in some way. But she also said that Jim's shoes were off and placed neatly beside the bed. But based on the crime scene photos, we know that Jim's photos were very clearly on his feet at the time. And honestly, Jennifer wasn't one of the daughters who went to the actual scene. So maybe she misunderstood Je Jerrica or Elise. Or maybe they were confused in the moment since this was such a trauma for them. Again, it's not really anything. It just struck me as odd. Yeah. Especially it was such a specific detail of, and they were placed neatly beside the bed. Yeah. You know, like it wasn't just his shoes were off. It was that extra detail that throws me. Uh, now, there are two more specific things that I want to mention regarding Buffalo Jim. The first is the motel key card. According to motel records, a key card was used to access room 105 at 8.15 p.m., seven minutes before Jim entered the motel's office. And according to those same records, the key card used to access the room was a guest key card. So was someone waiting in the room when Jim got there? Or did someone put the cocaine in the room? Was someone at the hotel in on it and gave Jim that specific room because they knew that someone else had access to it? I can't tell if any of the motel employees were ever questioned about this, but I feel like someone has to be involved because why else would a guest key open that specific door unless someone before him got that key, opened that room and went, this won't do, closed it and went back, but you think the motel staff would have said that 
Yeah. To police. <sighs> um, all of it kind of just makes for a good argument for the fact that Jim's death was not likely an accident. But Buffalo Jim was so beloved in Vegas. How could we assume that uh, his life was in danger? Well, maybe because he'd been receiving death threats in the forms of letters and phone calls. Jim received four threatening phone calls in 2006, the last on October 31st, in which the caller just outright said they would kill him. On November 16th, 2007, around 2 p.m., while talking with a customer in the parking lot of his business, a random vehicle tried to run Jim and the customer over. And on February 1st, 2008, Jim received a letter from an anonymous Metro officer who claimed that there would be violent attacks against Jim and that he would, quote, suffer in the near future. The fact that Jim died just over two months later feels unsettling, and according to Las Vegas Weekly, Jim received a threatening phone call on the day before he died. A man claiming to be a hitman called to say that Jim's life was in danger and that the person who hired him planned to use people to get close to Jim, which included a woman who could help gain access to Jim's business. So who would want Buffalo Jim dead? Who would be angry enough to allegedly hire a hitman? Well, I've got a couple of suspects for us to talk about. And we're going to get into them right after this break. I love that synergy. <laughs> Organic. It just yeah. feels right. You heard the lady. Grab another drink. Hit the can. And we're going to be right back with more on the Death in a Vegas Motel episode of Unsolved Mysteries on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, talking about the Death in a Vegas Motel episode of the Season 3 uh, installment of Unsolved Mysteries, of course, the death of Buffalo Jim. Before the break, Christy teased. She's got a couple of suspects, and I'd like to hear about them. Well, then you've come to the right place. Thank God. Yeah. So, we know that this mystery woman, Lisa, contacted Jim, and the two of them met up and went to the motel together. Lisa claims that Jim did a lot of drugs, had a seizure, 
she got scared and ran. And honestly, I, I buy her story. I could see them hanging out and partying and maybe Jim starts to have a seizure because he either consumed too much or maybe the cocaine was purer than he thought. And I think it's more than possible that she panicked, grabbed her stuff and ran. I also think it's more than possible that she was consuming cocaine herself, but didn't want to say that to police because she didn't want to get into any trouble. Right. So I, I buy all of that. Um, I especially buy it when she left a voicemail at 930 asking if he was okay, which shows at least some level of concern for the man she was allegedly friends with for a decade, but not enough concern to come forward with everything she knows. But maybe she's scared of someone else who is involved. Since we know that someone accessed Jim's room before he got to the motel, you have to wonder if Lisa was part of a setup to lure Jim to that motel. Was someone waiting in the room when they arrived? Did someone force Jim to take drugs by threatening to harm one of his daughters? There was no sign of a struggle in the room or on Jim's body, so we know he wasn't restrained in any way. Also, according to Jim's daughter, Jennifer, she said the last time they spoke, Jim said that if someone were to get him, they would, quote, make it look like he died of a drug overdose with women. So what more does Lisa know, and who was she potentially working for? Well, I have a few thoughts on who might hire Lisa. Right. Now, we know that Buffalo Jim was very beloved, but Jim was also involved in some very public feuds. For example... Jim had a public argument with singer Kid Rock. Oh, yeah. Uh, Jim loaned Kid Rock a, ca a car, specifically a 1961 Cadillac, and Kid blew the engine. Jim warned him not to drive the car more than a mile or two. But Kid ignored Jim's concerns and drove the car 44 miles or 70 kilometers south to Prim, Nevada, where he proposed to Pamela Anderson. <gasps> I remember that. <laughs> to be clear, I do not think that Kid Rock had anything to do with Jim's death. You know how this works. I find your weird information. I feel the need to share it. It's, it's just why we're here. Of course. But while Kid Rock may not be a suspect in this case... Because he's a suspect in others, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, I have two other people who could be. Number one, an entrepreneur, casino owner, and poker player who won titles at the World Series of Poker, Bob Stupak. Stupak? I'm realizing now I didn't look up how to pronounce his name. I'm going to, I assume it's Stupak. I hope I never say it again. Mm -hmm. uh, in 1992, Bob built the Stratosphere Hotel and Casino in Vegas, uh, which includes the tallest observation tower in the United States at 1,149 feet, or 350.2 meters. It is the second tallest observation tower in the Western Hemisphere, coming behind the CN Tower Well, in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, which boasts... 1,815 feet or 553.3 meters. So my point here is 
Bob had money. A.K.A. he had a net worth of about $54 million. So when Bob's 1979 Silver Shadow Rolls Royce had some mechanical problems, he took it to Allstate in December 2007 and asked Buffalo Jim to fix it, which he did. But when it came time for Bob to pay the $20,000 repair bill, Bob refused. Jim made several attempts to collect what was owed to him. Bob continued to refuse. So Jim just decided to keep the car as his own. And that is the very car he was driving the uh, day that he died. Oh, interesting. Then in January 2008, Jim filed a police report when the car went missing. Jim said he last saw the vehicle when he left town on December 26th, and when he returned on January 2nd, the car was gone. Jim had the keys, and no one else had permission to take the vehicle. Jim reported the vehicle stolen January 24th, and said he was delayed in reporting it missing because he had been sick. But before the report was officially filed, the Rolls-Royce magically returned to Jim's shop. Which can't be a coincidence, just weeks after a very public argument between Bob and Jim. And let's not forget the fact that when Jim's body was found, the Rolls-Royce, that very same car, was missing. But when Jim's daughters pointed that out to police, the car magically appeared just three hours later. So I can't help but wonder, did Bob, or someone associated with Bob, steal the Rolls-Royce? Or in their minds, take back what was legally Bob's? I'm convinced of it, but when they were tipped off by police, they put the car back to avoid trouble. And since this happened just months before Jim's death, is it possible that Bob set Jim up? Did Bob want revenge for Jim taking the car? Honestly, if Bob paid someone to kill Jim and make it look like an accident, why wouldn't he just pay the bill to get his car back? So I'm not completely convinced that Bob is involved in Jim's death, but I am absolutely convinced that Bob stole that vehicle both times. Allegedly. Mm. But whoever took the car on both occasions obviously had a set of keys to it, and Jim had the only set, so who would possibly have a spare set of those keys? Probably the car's original owner, which would be Bob. Now, Bob did die from leukemia in 2009 at the age of 67. So if he was connected with Jim's death in any way, we'll never know unless Lisa comes forward with the truth. And who knows if Lisa is even still alive at this point. We don't even know if Lisa is her real name or not. But since we know Lisa was with Jim that night, we know she's somehow connected to all of this. So is she connected to someone else that Jim was having a public feud with? Yes, she was. Lisa was a dancer at a gentleman's club called the Crazy Horse 2, which was located right next to Jim's auto shop. And remember earlier when I mentioned that Jim's shop was having problems with a neighboring business and that the feud got so bad that Jim's common-law wife, Roxanne, left him because of it? Well, it's the feud with none other than crazy horse owner, Frederick Rick Rizzolo. Now, the Crazy Horse 2 
was originally built in 1972. In 1978, it was a very popular club called Billy Joe's. When it was purchased by a known mob member, Tony Albanese. Not to be confused with non-mob member and current Prime Minister of Australia, Anthony Albanese. (laughs) It's funny what comes up when you do a Google search. Uh, So in regards to the mob guy, Tony, uh, he buys Billy Joe's after the original owner died from health complications. At the time, Tony owned another nightclub in Vegas called the Crazy Horse Saloon, which was located at the intersection of Flamingo Road and Paradise Road. So he got the great idea to name this new place Billy Joe's Crazy Horse 2. And what makes me laugh is you think I'm saying like the number two, like T-W-O. I am not. I am saying Crazy Horse T-O-O, which for some reason charms me completely. So before living in Vegas... Tony had a successful chain of topless bars throughout the 60s in Southern California. For whatever reason, it was called Lil Abner and started out as a chain of bars featuring waitresses in bikinis. Soon, Lil Abner became one of the first topless bar chains in Los Angeles. But after some legal troubles, Tony made the move to Vegas in the early 70s. In 1978, he bought Billy Joe's, changed the name to Billy Joe's Crazy Horse 2. Now, multiple articles have commented that a man named Bart Rizzolo bought the Crazy Horse 2 from Tony in 1984. And while Bart did, in fact, buy the club, he didn't buy it from Tony. Because in May 1981, Tony told his wife he was going to meet with a business associate and he'd be back in an hour. But Tony never returned. A month later, a camper found Tony's head in the desert outside of Needles, California. His skull showed no signs of trauma, and the coroner was unable to conclusively determine Tony's cause of death. So with Tony dead, his right-hand man, Henry Rapuano, took over club operations, Henry's son Al was a close associate of Rick Rizzolo. So Henry takes over the club in 1981 until he dies of a sudden heart attack in 1982. Henry's son takes over briefly and in February 1984 makes his friend Rick Rizzolo the new head of operations. And since Rick was in charge, his father Bart Rizzolo decided to just outright buy the club later that month. And by 1986, Rick was the majority owner. Over the years, there were rumors of mob involvement at the club, specifically members of the five families in New York. And no, we are not surprised that the mob might have connections to Vegas. According to the Las Vegas Review-Journal, Vegas is, quote, regarded as an open city for more than two dozen mafia families across the country. Many have representatives in Las Vegas for decades, with Chicago being the most dominant. Known mobster Bugsy Siegel opened the Flamingo, the first resort-style hotel on the Strip in 1946, so we know there is a long history of the mob in Vegas. 
And yes, there are a million examples. We don't have time to get into all of the mob members known to be in Vegas. The point is that while Rick didn't appear to be a legit mob member himself, he definitely hired a lot of men who had mob affiliations, such as Rocky Lombardo, who was the brother of Chicago crime boss Joey the Clown Lombardo. (laughs) I know, I love it so much. Uh, And Vincent Ferracci, who was a member of the Banano... Banano? Oh. Banano crime family. There we go. And the son of one of New York's biggest loan sharks, Johnny Green Ferracci. I will never not love their names. The Clown is a a new one for me that (laughs) I'm really enjoying. Especially when they give the name to themselves. That's another That's another level. Oh, yeah. Uh, sources also state that uh, Joey Cusimano, a former top lieutenant in the Chicago outfit run by Anthony Tony the Ant Spilotro. Tony the Ant. <laughs> I, it, it's just he, he took the word Anthony. Yep. And he was like, how can I make this a nickname? And he did. He sure um, did. But Joey was not only Rick's Rick Rizzolo's BFF, he was also the godfather to Rick's children. Oh. And Rick was also close friends with uh, Fred Pacente, who was a mob boss from Chicago. Hmm. But mob connections or not, business started going very well for Rick. So well, in fact, that in 1998, Rick wanted to expand the club. And but what better way to do that than take over a neighboring building? Thing is, Buffalo Jim's auto shop was that very building, and despite Rick asking Jim to leave, Jim refused. And honestly, for good reason. From the sounds of it, Rick wasn't offering to pay Jim to leave. He was just trying to bully him into leaving. Jim said, quote, He could have had me out of this place in April 1997 if he would have done business with me like a man. So Jim stood up to Rick's bullying and chose to stay, but Rick refused to take it lying down. In 2002, Jim filed a $1 million harassment lawsuit against Rick, citing interference with business, lost income, and intentional affliction of emotional distress. Jim claimed that his customers' vehicles were either vandalized or towed away, and that over the years, it had cost Jim hundreds of thousands of dollars. Jim said, quote, I was afraid to leave anything at my lot because of vandalism or them towing cars away. It was like being under siege. Jim also accused Rick of breaking into his shop on multiple occasions, setting up video cameras to watch him. There were six separate break-ins at Jim's shop, but nothing was ever stolen. Jim believes it was done to give Rick the chance to place bugs in the shop, which were found in the bathroom, the office, the waiting area, and at the front desk. There were also wires found going from the auto shop through a wall that they shared with the crazy horse, too. Which also feels a little like it's obvious when they see the wires, guys. (laughs) I mean, come on. Uh, So Rick allegedly tried to bully Jim into moving so that Rick could expand his club. But planting bugs and vandalizing is a far cry from murder. And since we are talking about Rick Rizzolo, 
as a potential murder suspect, we need to look into any history of violence. And it turns out the Crazy Horse 2 had a reputation for violence and possible mob involvement. Bouncers uh, were often seen assaulting patrons. These are just a few examples. In 1985, a man named Rick Sandin suffered permanent brain damage after being beaten outside the club with a baseball bat by Rick Rizzolo. Rizzolo claimed it was in self-defense, and even though he pleaded no contest to the charges, Rizzolo managed to avoid jail time. Interesting. Then in August 1995, club patron Scott Foe got into a fight with four bouncers at the club. The fight got so bad that police and paramedics were called. The bouncers were taken to the hospital and treated for broken hands. Ooh. Scott wasn't found until three hours later when police discovered him near the railroad tracks behind the club. He had a broken leg, a broken foot, a broken nose, and a head wound that was so bad that Scott died soon after. Scott's widow filed a wrongful death lawsuit against the four bouncers, and in January 2003, they were found not liable for Scott's death. Mm. January 2001, Sean Spanik went to the Crazy Horse 2 with some friends. Sean noticed charges on their tab that shouldn't have been there, so they complained. According to Sean, the bouncers, quote, threw us against the wall and then out the door, then on to the ground, and left us bloodied. March 2001, Brian Devlin claimed after he refused to pay $600 for a lap dance, he was taken to the parking lot where multiple bouncers beat him unconscious. Brian says when he woke up, he was covered in blood and his wallet was missing. Mm. July 2001, Eben Kostbar offered to buy his friend a lap dance. When the club tried to charge him twice the price, he refused. Eben said they were then taken outside and beaten by the bouncers. He suffered a contusion to his nose, a concussion, and eventually had to have plastic surgery to fix damage oh to his my eye. God. Eben filed a lawsuit, but the case was dismissed in September 2003, one month before it was supposed to go to trial. April 2002. Jermaine Malcolm Simeo was asked to leave the club when he got into an argument with another patron. According to the police report, quote, Victim states as soon as they got outside, victim was struck while his arms were being held by a bouncer. Another person was hitting him in the head. The victim states his arms were held by someone else while he was being hit. Victim states he has a black eye, two chipped teeth, a possible broken nose, knots in his head, and his shoulder is bruised. May 2002, because yes, somehow these keep going, Michael Silverman and his wife attended the club together. They got separated in a large crowd, so Michael went to look for her. Michael joked to a bouncer that his wife probably ran off with a stripper to get cocaine. Which is not funny, Michael. It's just not. Uh, the bouncer told Michael that they were not allowed to say the word cocaine in the club. So when Michael said it again, the bouncer hit him repeatedly. The bouncer was charged with misdemeanor battery, and their case was settled out of court months later. 
According to the Las Vegas Review Journal, between 2001 and 2003, the police were called out to the club more than 700 times. Whoa. And the worst part is, during those 700 plus calls, the Crazy Horse 2 didn't get a single citation or have a single member of their staff arrested. Nor did they have to go in front of city council for a hearing, which is protocol for any business in the city's jurisdiction that was suspected of wrongdoing. During the 90s and early 2000s, at least seven civil cases were brought against the club, but none went to trial. All were settled out of court. And while I could talk about the dark side of Crazy Horse 2 forever, I have just one final incident for you. In September 2001, Kirk Henry was in Vegas for a convention when he stopped by the club. Kirk went to pay his tab at the end of the night. He disputed the $88 total. Kirk claims that he was taken to the parking lot where he was beaten by the shift manager, Bobby DePiche. Kirk suffered a broken neck and was left paralyzed from the chest down. Jesus. Representatives for the club claimed that Kirk was so drunk that he fell in the parking lot and broke his own neck. Mm. Come on. And just to be clear, prior to working at the club, uh, Bobby DePiche had previous arrests for battery on an officer, carrying a concealed weapon, and domestic battery. Just putting that out there. So Kirk filed a lawsuit, and when he did, it allowed the FBI to pursue a criminal RICO investigation against the club. RICO, of course, being short for racketeer-influenced and corrupted organization. So two days after Kirk's lawsuit was filed, police used search warrants to remove business records from the club. By October 2002, the FBI took over the investigation. In 2004, Bobby's home was searched by both the FBI and the IRS, and he was eventually arrested for the assault of Kirk Henry, as well as racketeering charges, distribution of narcotics, and aiding and abetting in prostitution or illegal sexual activity. Bobby was later also charged with making false statements to a federal grand jury regarding Kirk Henry's case. During the massive investigation which included more than 8,000 hours of wiretapped conversations, it came out that the club and Rick Rizzolo had been on the FBI's radar since August 1995 for allegations of prostitution, tax evasion, violence, and money laundering. Since the club was the place to be, celebrities were often spotted there, including names such as Mike Tyson, Brad Pitt, Dennis Rodman, and Tom Selleck? Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, those long legs took him all the way to Vegas. <laughs> so long. He's a very tall man. It's mm -hmm. intimidating. Uh, during the investigation, officers even interviewed Joe Pesci, Robert De Niro, and George Clooney, who was allegedly a good friend of Rick Rizzolo. I have nothing else to add there. I just like any excuse to mention George Clooney. Shout out to George and Amal, one of my favorite celebrity couples. Yeah. But do you know who my all-time favorite celebrity couple is? As in, like, I've been rooting for them since day one, and it warms my heart that they're still together. And if they ever break up, to the sea. Uh, I'm going to guess Curtin Goldie. 
Oh, fuck. Oh, this is this is close. <laughs> Sarah Michelle Geller and oh, Freddie Prince of Jr. Of course, yes. I don't know why. The two of them together? It's beautiful. Yeah. Anyhow, back on topic. Kurt and Goldie. Fuck, you know I love that too. I know it. Uh so some of this, the investigation that they were building because of Kirk Henry kind of opening the door, uh, some of the best intel that they got in this investigation came from Buffalo Jim. Since Jim saw a lot of things firsthand from his proximity to the club, he wrote down every deal, detail he could about any beatings or any drug use that he saw at the Crazy Horse 2. So for two years, Jim collected evidence and just constantly sending it off to the police and the FBI. And thanks to Jim's intel, the FBI was able to raid the Crazy Horse 2 in February 2003, taking a total of 170 items, including records dating back to 1995. The search lasted 11 hours. Rick denied any involvement in criminal activity, stating his club made more than $10 million a year. So, quote, I wouldn't do something to jeopardize that. Well, according to the club's records, Rick was being paid a $20,000 consulting fee every month, which feels like a red flag for investigators that could have been avoided if Rick had been smart. Rick also admitted that he didn't pay taxes between 2000 and 2002, and that he didn't keep accurate records, and that he always paid his employees in cash. Oh, boy. The employees also admitted to padding the customer's bill and then using physical force to get them to pay up. Jesus! Buffalo Jim had friends who worked in the club, and according to him, this is how it would normally work. Quote, A mark comes in. The manager sends his girls to meet him at the door. They bring him straight back to the VIP, which cost him $100 a girl just to enter. And he has to buy at least one bottle of champagne, something that costs the club $80, but for him, it's $800. He has some fun, and before he knows it, they're ringing up $5,000 on his credit card. If he contests the bill, he's taken out, and the big goons Rizzolo employs beat his head in. Wow. Which is very similar to the scheme that the dancers were running in the 2019 movie Hustlers. That's right. Is based on a true story. In short, the dancers would get club patrons overly drunk, take their credit cards, and rack up insane charges. So, Buffalo Jim said that, quote, that's what happened with Kirk Henry. I was there, I saw him. Jim said that he arrived at work the next morning and found Kirk lying on the ground outside the club doors. Jim took photos of the scene and called 911, which he had done dozens of times before this event and had to do dozens of times after it. And the attack on Kirk energized the FBI's investigation into the Crazy Horse 2, which led to that raid in 2003. And Rick not only bragged that business at the club increased thanks to the publicity from the raid. He also announced that he planned to sue the government for money lost 
during that 11-hour raid, which Rick estimates between, to be between forty dollars and $60,000. Now, I'm not great with math on the spot, but I did some in advance. Uh-huh. And this math does not check out Rick, uh, especially when Rick claimed the club made $10 million a year. Now, apparently the club is open 364 days a year. It is, quote, closed on Christmas to clean the carpets. Gross. Which is one of the dumbest things I've said out loud. Apparently the place was open 24 hours a day, which is unbelievably sad to me. But if the club is open 364 days a year, that would mean it would make approximately just under $28,000 a day. Yes, some days they're going to make more than others. But the raid went from 5 a.m. to 4 p.m. There is no way the club would make almost twice a usual day's worth in that 11-hour span. Anyhow, just uh, do better on your math, Rick. Yeah. Uh, in June 2006, Rick took a plea deal and agreed to plead guilty to conspiracy to defraud the government. As part of the deal, Rick had to sell the Crazy Horse 2 within one year, as well as pay $17 million in fines, including $4.2 million to the federal government and $1.7 million to the IRS. Rick was also ordered to pay Kirk Henry $10 million. When Kirk died from complications... Of his injuries in March 2017 at the age of 58, Rizzolo still owed him $8.8 million. Sixteen other club officials, including Bobby DePiche, pleaded guilty to a felony tax charge of conspiracy to defraud the government. One even pleaded guilty to perjury. Most served between six and 16 months in prison. Bobby also pleaded guilty to four counts of making false statements to a grand jury, plus a felony racketeering charge, which carries a possible sentence of up to 20 years and a $250,000 fine, but Bobby took a plea deal and served 41 months and paid nothing. The club ended up losing its liquor license three months later and eventually had to close. When it came time for Rick to sell, there were just no interested buyers, and the club was eventually seized by U.S. Marshals in September 2007. And since Buffalo Jim's auto shop was on the same land, which was all owned by Rick Rizzolo, Jim was forced to move to a new location, which he was organizing shortly before his death. In 2007, Rick was sentenced to one year and one day in prison. He ended up being released after 10 months in March 2008. The day Rick was released, Jim's auto shop was broken into. Nothing was taken. The only thing that was different, a piece of paper containing Jim's home address, was left on top of Jim's desk. Which feels like a very, I know where you live, uh, sort of thing. Totally. And if that isn't creepy enough, after his release, Rick was put on house arrest, which ended on April 4th, 2008, the day before buffalo jim died and i mentioned earlier that there were threatening letters that jim had received some outright stated that the rizzolo family had hired someone to kill jim this is a excerpt 
from a letter dated February 1st, 2008. Quote, Meetings have been taking place at various locations around town by Rick Rizzolo. Rick was one of the persons driving around your property last week. Be careful, he's up to no good. He's using people to get close to you. He's discussed using a female to get access to your business. Bart Rizzolo has been overheard telling some of his close contacts that there will be violent attacks against you. He has let it be known you will suffer in the near future. Two days before his death, Jim spoke with a journalist from Las Vegas Weekly, and he mentioned these letters he had been receiving. Jim then said, quote, They're going to try and do it through a woman, or they're going to try and drug me. So to sum up what we know, Jim believed that if someone was going to kill him, they'd either use drugs or a woman. Cocaine was involved in Jim's death, and we know that a woman named Lisa was at the scene and had some varying degree of involvement. We also know that Lisa worked as a dancer at the Crazy Horse 2, meaning that Rick was her boss, and Rick was released from house arrest the day before Jim died. So is it possible that Rick used Lisa to lure Jim to the motel where Rick was waiting for them? There were no signs of trauma on Jim's body, no signs of a struggle in the room, but it's possible that someone like Rick would want to make Jim's death look like an accident. If Jim was very clearly beaten or shot, the timing of his death compared to Rick's release would be super suspicious. And for those who think maybe Rick wasn't a violent guy, after all, most of the assaults that I mentioned from the Crazy Horse were inflicted by shift managers or bouncers. Uh, Rick did assault that one man in 1985 with a baseball bat. Uh, there's also the fact that a former cocktail waitress, uh, who worked at Crazy Horse 2, said that Rick once threatened to kill her boyfriend. Mm. Didn't say why, but, you know. Uh, and then there was a time in 1985 when Buffalo Jim witnessed Rick fatally shooting a dog that was just walking back behind the building. It wasn't doing anything. Rick is just an unfeeling monster. Got it. So... Do I think Rick is capable of ordering a hit on Buffalo Jim? I do. Do I think Rick could have threatened Jim or coerced him into taking a lethal amount of cocaine? I do. Especially if Rick threatened to hurt Jim's daughters. I know I mentioned this sort of theory earlier, but I just think that one of the only things that could have made Jim go along with Rick's plan is if Jim's daughters were threatened in any way. I am, of course speculating. It is also possible that Rick ordered the hit, but wasn't actually there. Maybe the person who entered Jim's room before he got there was planting some sort of camera so that Jim's death could be recorded and viewed later by Rick, or specifically viewed in real time by Rick. Or it's also possible that Rick isn't involved in Jim's death at all. In July 2014, Rick was indicted again for tax evasion. Investigators believe that Rick tried to hide his assets, made false statements to the IRS, and used an offshore trust account between June 2006 and May 2011. Rick also openly 
admitted to underreporting wages, paying employees in cash, and in October 2017, Rick was sentenced to two years in prison. Prior to his second visit to prison, Rick was working with a Nevada import company as a management and senior sales consultant, which sounds like a real made-up title for yeah. a, a man. I'm sure people genuinely do that, but for him, I don't know. Uh, Rick has also since uh, been released and has been living a low profile somewhere in Nevada. Uh, Rick Rizzolo has never been charged in connection to the death of Buffalo Jim. Rick failed to sell the Crazy Horse 2 in his allotted one-year time frame, so it was seized by the United States Marshal Service in 2007. The building was later auctioned off by the federal government and was bought by a California strip club owner who reopened it in May 2013. It didn't last long. It was closed August 2014. The building fell into disrepair and became a public place for vandal or a popular place rather for vandals after a series of fires in early 2022, including one that gutted the building entirely. A judge ordered the Crazy Horse 2 to be demolished. Buffalo Jim worked hard for every dollar that he had. He got to Vegas in 1971 with no job and no money. And 30 years later, not only had he built an auto repair shop business from the ground up, but he also became one of the best-known figures in the city. Jim worked hard to provide for his family and to have his life end so soon is such a tragedy, especially when it's possible that his death was a homicide and that it was just never properly investigated. And sadly, the only way we'll ever know the truth is if Lisa comes forward and tells the whole story. Reporting for True Crime and Cocktails, I'm Christy Oxborough. Well, listen, lots to talk about. Lots to talk about. Uh, let's take one more break, get another drink, hit the can, and we're going to give our final thoughts and theories on the Death in a Vegas Motel episode of this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Welcome to Fail Better. David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, discussing the Unsolved Mysteries episode, Death in a Vegas Motel. Uh... Lots to dig into here. I My pen ran out partway through, so I'm going between <laughs> written notes and phone mm-hmm. notes, but mm-hmm. here we go. Um, 
All right. First of all, I just want to give a preface by saying anytime the mob is involved, I'm terrified. Uh, sure. I know that cookies gets titillated, but <laughs> biscuits over here gets just a quick butt clench. You know what I mean? I'm just <laughs> like, oh, well, we just let them do what they do. And I know yep. what people are thinking. They're thinking, Lauren, you don't think that the mob should be brought to justice? Doesn't matter what I think. Doesn't matter what I think. <laughs> it's not a business. It's not our business. Yeah, I get it. It's not our business. You do you. We're doing us. Thank you. Anyway, oh. good night. Um, I actually just thought of that movie the other day. Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Yeah. I was out uh, the other night with someone, and they said to me, there's no Thanksgiving movies. And I said, nah, nah, nah. you're wrong. See, this is a beautiful thing. This is what you can bring <laughs> To it, like someone could be like, I wish there was a movie for this occasion. And you could be like, if it's a holiday season, I've got one for you. I got you. Do you like Christmas? <laughs> Do you like Lithgow? <laughs> <laughs> Daddy, yeah, I get it. Home, too. Oh, um, God. What a delight. All right. Uh, okay. I've got a few questions. Yes. The time of death was estimated to be between 7 and 9 p.m. on April 5th. But we know yes. that he was checking into the room at 8.22. Yep. So, so that, that makes should it feel to me like there's a real short window of death. Yeah. Right? Oh, it would have to be in the, like, 40 minutes from when he checked in till 9. Yeah, 38 yeah. to 40 minutes. Yeah, it's a very short amount of time, which is interesting to me. Like, why say seven to nine when we have him on video? Because I've, I've seen the episode, so I saw the surveillance right. tape yeah. at 8.22 going in to get yep. the key card. That's weird to me. Yeah, I'm also convinced it happened closer to nine. I would, would love to, to see the record of, like, what time did Lisa call the cab? Mm -hmm. Did she call the cab from the room or did she leave the room and then start walking somewhere and then call the cab? Great question. Um, because then she called Jim at 930 to ask if he was okay. So to me, that was she got the hell out of there between 9, 915. Yeah. Took off and then waited 15, 30 minutes and then was like, I, I should make sure he's okay. Here's the only other thing I will y – yes, I agree with you. Here's the only thing I will offer because we know that there was a a room uh, – a guest room key that accessed the room earlier, right? Yes. I'm not suggesting that it's not connected to the case. It absolutely could be. It could have been someone hiding in the room. It could have been somebody planting something in the room. It could have been people – we know that there have been bugs planted prior. Could have been that. Sure. I am just only giving – a small amount of my own context, which is having traveled a fair amount in the good old United States of America and Canada, there have been times where I have been given a room key to a room that was not mine. And there can be varying degrees of embarrassment, uh, I remember when we were touring with the Second City, friend of the podcast, Leslie Seiler, she went to open a room and there was a Texas, a Texan man. We only say that because he had a very thick Texan accent um, changing in the room. 
and she had a key card that she was given that was absolutely, she was told, that's your room, that's where you're going. And there was somebody in that room that was staying in that room. So not to say that I don't think it's possible. I think it is a key piece of evidence. But my question just is, is it also possible that it was just a red herring, that it was a mistake? In that case, I would say, what does the front desk staff have to say about that? Is there a manager that has been interviewed? You know what I'm saying? Like, obviously, if it was somebody else checking in and they checked into the wrong room or they checked into the room, they didn't like it, they went back to the front desk, you would think that the staff would have communicated that to authorities, um, which it doesn't sound like people have. So I offer it only just as, is it possible in the grand scheme of things that it may not have been a factor it's possible not necessarily probable but you know what i mean um okay the fact that there's no signs of struggle it makes me feel like if there was someone else in that room it does feel like it was i mean what are the scenarios let's play this out here because we know there was cocaine in his system right and the yep. cause of death was ruled as um, basically cocaine intoxication and heart disease. Exactly. So if there was someone in the room, is it possible they came out, gun to his head, and forced him to do drugs? That's possible. Sure. Is it possible they had just planted drugs in that room and left? That's possible. Sure. Is it possible, again, that, you know, Lisa, whoever Lisa may or may not be, was an accessory to either of those options or, you know, it was all coming from her? That is possible. What feels like we can rule out is an attack because there was no signs of struggle. There was no cause of death that pointed towards that. So, again, to me, if you're going to go to the trouble of hiring Lisa... What do you gain by planting things in that room? Because we know that, as you said, friends of his said, well, it was not necessarily uncommon for him to be taking women back to that same motel that he had been kind of dipping into uh, the nose candy and whatnot. Again, no judgment from me. Um, But it feels odd to me that it would just be, well, somebody went in there and planted something. Because it feels like if you were going to hire someone to do that, Lisa could have, and you were hire and you were hiring Lisa, she could have taken care of providing him with the drugs. So yeah, again, they give it, her the drugs to give to him. Exactly, it's such so, an easier thing than having two people, right? Yeah. So do, if yeah. if there was someone else who accessed that room for, and then and the only other thing I want to mention is. We know how deep the mob goes. As I've said already, we respect you. You do you. We do us. We're not <laughs> coming for you. Um, for our own safety, we're not coming for you. But, like, if they can make bigger things go away, couldn't they make the record of the key cards entering the room go away? Yeah. It just feels like Either that is literally the linchpin of this case, or it is a complete red herring. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's yep. it's either 
yeah, it, there, there's no middle ground. It's either, oh my God, this is this is the, the smoking gun, or it's like, nope, it was a complete fluke and means absolutely nothing. Like, there's no middle ground. Because to me, again, the only way I feel like that someone would be in this room if this was premeditated would be to hold a gun to his head and force him to do drugs. Yeah. And if that was the case... Was another person seen leaving? Was there another access point? We don't have the answers to these things, but you know what I'm saying? What's interesting to me, too, is that Lisa said they were in the room and they played a sexual fantasy game. Yeah. So we know that he was in the lobby at 822, which means they were getting into that room not before, what, 825, 826? Sure. I'm speculating. And we know that he was likely dead by nine. So, and look, we don't know whether what she's saying is true or not. But again, that's only really giving us a half an hour of time. Yeah. And the question that I would then ask, because I'm not saying that that's not true. I'm also, I just need to make it sparkling clear. Not judging any of this at this point. Um, why did she leave her car at a gas station? It's weird why they met somewhere and then drove together. And then what, you were going to drive her to her car and then go on? Why wouldn't you have just met at the motel? At, at the motel. Unless they met up, they were at the gas station, and then it was like, hey, we're going there. I'll just drive you. Possible. Possible. But again, it just feels like everything is – what we're dealing with is such a short amount of time if we're to believe anything that Le- what Lisa is saying is true. Because they get into that yes. room 824, 826-ish, something in that range. Yep. He's dead by, by 9. She's gone at whatever time. She's calling by 930 to check on him. It's yeah. a speed. There's a speed to that. Yeah, that's it is incredibly fast. Now there's two phones found in the room that weren't his. Yes. And they were only one was photographed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's something else that would point to there being Lisa, potentially, and someone else, potentially, in that room. My question is, the call that Lisa made to him, asking if he was okay, was that from her typical cell phone? You know what I mean? Was this an additional burner phone? These are the details that it's like, these are the things that, if you gave us some badges and just 20 minutes of the police computer, these are the questions we would ask. But you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like... Because then, okay, well, were there two people in there already? But we know there was no signs of struggle. This is the thing, again, that just doesn't add up. Yeah, it's why I keep coming back to, did somebody threaten his kids in some way? Because I just feel like, what, they asked him to do something? Like, they wouldn't have want him, they would not have wanted him physically hurt in some way if they wanted it to look like an accident. Right. So they couldn't press the gun too close to his head. And the amount of times that 
Rick had done stuff to him that, you know, vandalizing his cars, that sort of thing. He just, he, he didn't just take it. Like he would try and fight back. So then I'm like, okay, if someone was like threatening him with a gun, did he just immediately go, okay, whatever you want? Right. Or would he have tried to like fight them because a court, like, again, no sign of a struggle, no sign on his body that there was any sort of, like his hands weren't tied or there was no sign that he had been held in any way or hurt in any way. Yeah. Yeah. And then again, his car disappearing from the parking lot, three hours later it reappears. Yeah. It's like, is that connected to this? Or is that another red herring where it was, you know what I mean? Was there a perfect yeah. storm of classic Lauren Ash? They all did it. Like, was there, a, you know, a couple of things happening? Because my immediate gut was, well, did Lisa take his car? And then realize, shit, what have I done? I have to put this back. Because it doesn't sure. feel to me, mob people, I, I mean, why? I hope no one in the mob is listening. Uh, you know, if they were, but again, we, you do you. Um, yeah. But it doesn't feel plausible to me that someone who is mob affiliated, who has been potentially hired to do a hit, is going to then take the person's car, which is also, yeah. by the way, a very noticeable, distinguishable yep. car. It's a Rolls Royce. It's not like it's yeah. a it's a Toyota Prius. You know what I mean? Like sure. there's not a lot of these on the road. You know what I'm saying? So like again, that just feels to me like I find it implausible to think that anyone who is a professional criminal sure is going to take that car and then go, "Oops, I should take that back." To me, it was either the car's yeah. original owner, yep, or Lisa. That feels like the only plausibility sure. for that that car situation to me. Oh, yeah. I don't but, think the car going missing had anything to do with his death. But then, why does it come back so clean? So clean that there's no hairs inside. God bless. We've all, if you haven't, Google a picture of Buffalo Jim. That was a hairy man. Yes. We got a lot of hair, a lot of beard, a lot of these situations. Yes. So then it's like... Is there a scenario in which something happened even before we're thinking about? Was someone else in the roles with him directing him to go there? Sure. Is that a scenario that's happened? I, I, I'm trying to wrap my head around any of it. You know what I'm saying? But like to me, it's like if it all happened in the motel room, why would the car potentially need to be cleaned? Is it possible it just got cleaned that day super well? That's possible in the grand scheme sure. of anything being possible. But again, if we had badges, those are the questions we'd be asking to his employees. Sure. Did he take his car to get it cleaned? Did he get it detailed today? It feels unlikely that there wouldn't be some sign of him in that car. And if we are to yes. think that Lisa was in that car with him too – her hair being in that car. Oh, yeah. Um, We're all shedding oh, constantly. You know oh, what I'm saying? 100%. Like, come on. My car, I can't even Constant. think about it. Um, oh, 
Look, I just had this thought. Yeah. What if, because as far as we know, there's no cameras outside the motel. Right. He gets the key card. They're walking, seen walking towards the room. What if as he's like opening the room, someone hits him from behind? There was no sign of trauma. But then I want to ask, did they like shave his head to check to see if he'd been hit in the head? Did they check for any sort of injection marks? Well, the problem becomes for me too. And the reason why this is a tough one, in my opinion, is when we're dealing with the mob. Yes. It's so hard to know what the truth is. Yeah. Because we're trusting that the coroner's report hasn't been altered because of a threat. We're trusting, right? Yeah. It's 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 tough because again it's it's like it could be anything at that point. Anything could have happened. Unless there was a second autopsy taken out by another right? Yeah. By a different coroner or a different um, medical examiner. And and the thing also to remember too is like I was thinking about hot shots which as we know are are made to look it's an injection. Of course, we talked about this in yeah. earlier episodes. It's made to look like you've had a drug overdose, but you haven't. Uh, now, I don't think it's going to make it look like you've had a cocaine overdose. But my whole point is, is that it's like, is it possible again that there was something else that had happened in that half an hour window? Um, and then because of cover-ups, whatever you want to label it as. I mean, again, like like we're dealing with powerful people, powerful people who, you know, as you were saying, it, it, no stranger to Las Vegas. So again, it's like, yep. it's just hard for me because it's it's like we can speculate forever, but at the end of the day, it could be as simple as who knows what happened in that room because all the documents were altered. Yeah. Yeah. Right? That is, that is very true. I mean, look, Mob, I I am wildly fascinated by how you work and everything. And uh, there's just a level of respect within your uh, community. Yeah. Uh, but I'd like it to be noted. I would like to not meet one of you. We don't want Personally. It. Nope. Um, you do you from over there. We'll do us from over here. Because the whole point and, is is that yeah. it does become omnipotent at some point, right? Where it's like if you sure. have people that have that level of influence and control, then you'll just never know the truth. And that's not me being – trying to be negative, but it's just like – it kind of is what it is. Yeah. Because when you start to really break it down, again, it's like – it's tough not to, again, just go like uh, – as soon as I hear mob, I just go like, oh, I don't think we're ever going to know the answer. You know no. what I mean? Like, and, and that's no. tragic and sad and all of the above, but it's like, there's no way to know how deep it runs. There's no way to know the layers. And if we have a direct connection, it just feels again to me like it's it's hard to know what you can trust as being absolutely the truth is all I'm saying. Yes. Um, 
I have to comment on this Kid Rock situation. For <laughs> years, I was yeah. very invested in the Kid Rock Pamela Anderson relationship. I don't know why. I just was. You and wanted because her happy. I wanted her happy. And I thought, is he the dirtbag to do it? He and was it not. wasn't. He was not. Uh, but I remember those photos vividly. Vividly. And that's wild. When you were talking about Billy Joe's Crazy Horse 2, as in T-O-O, all yes. I could think about, and I was like, what's the episode with the tuna tuna bar, remember? Oh, the tuna. Not Will Henderson. Um, remember, it was like, um, did he go missing after talking to the band? These are the details oh, I remember. Oh, um, Brian Schaefer. Brian Schaefer, remember? The and Ugly was, Tuna Saluna. Thank you very much. I knew as soon as I said it, I, if I gave you enough, you'd get there. That's yeah, what that made me think of. It's, that's how I work with Christmas movies as well. Of course. Or apparently, M. M. Night Shyamalan movie. <laughs> Mwaki. Yeah. Um, what's interesting to me again, just circling back for a second, is, yeah. is you know, Rick Rosolo. Yes. Wanted to expand. Buffalo Jim was like, hell no. Rick was not offering money. Again, Rick, we know, known mob, known mob guy. Oh, so he's absolutely connected in multiple ways. So his in his world, you don't need money. Sure. Here's what I want to comment on that. And then and then Buffalo Jim files a harassment suit. Here's what I want to say. Buffalo Jim, that's a set of balls. And I say yeah. that with, with reverence, honestly. But if you know that there is a known mob member who, that you later pointed out, owned the land that your business was on. Yeah. Owned the land and was yeah. saying, I need you to go, you got to go, whatever. And you refused and escalated it to filing a, a harassment suit. God bless you, because that is a set of uh, that. That's a confidence I'll never know. I will never know that feeling. Yeah, um, the second I'm asked to go, I'm already packing, right? I'm making a list in my head of things I need to take with me. Yeah, right. Yep, hundred percent. So then, it's interesting to me because he then collected all this information, which he was passing on to the police and the FBI, etc. So this does feel like he would be a real target, yep. given all of that. Um, the break-ins, six break-ins, nothing is stolen, but there was bugs planted around the house, around the business, rather. Um, you know, we know the Crazy Horse 2 had this reputation for violence, all of the above. But the other thing, again, that we know was 700-plus calls no citations, no one arrested, people are getting beaten, yep. there is active fraud going on, allegedly. Um, to me, again, I respect the gumption, but it's like, I just don't know how you come out of this unscathed. I just don't, I just don't know. And that's not, I'm not suggesting in any way that Buffalo Jim, like, brought this upon himself or deserved it. I'm not saying sure. that at all. But it feels like it's such a, a direct connection. Right. That it, again, to me, it then just kind of fizzles for me when I try and figure out what's 
the situation here because I go, well, he actively antagonized the mob on multiple occasions. Yeah. So anything could be true. It's true. And that doesn't make it right. That doesn't make it okay. That doesn't make me, again, I'm not, I, I commend him for having that kind of courage. And, and again, the, the, the bravery to say, no, this isn't right. I'm going to stand up against them. That is honorable. 100% honorable. Yes. But when we're doing the work that we do, it just makes me kind of drop my pen because I'm like, but again, then, then the truth could be anything. Anything could have happened in that room. Anything could have happened in that car. Anything could have been covered up. Because you know as well as I do, and we've talked about it, we've touched on it in places in this episode, the mob is not necessarily subscribing to the same set of laws and rules that the rest of society is. Sure. Especially in a town like Las Vegas. Yes. So my, um, my thing is assuming it is mob. Sure. Because some people do um, based solely on the fact that that $1 bill was found folded in half. Right. Which I have Googled trying to see that anybody else on the planet has ever said that is a sign of the mob. And I couldn't find anything that was outright like absolutely the mob. Maybe they know inner workings of the mob that I don't more than possible because I don't know uh, everything about the mob. I don't know everything in general. Um, but to me, if the whole point was to make it look like an accident, why wouldn't you have left like some sort of like drug residue why wouldn't you have made it way more obvious that right. it was an overdose like why wouldn't you leave something on that counter why wouldn't you leave the the baggie behind why wouldn't you leave whatever could have been used to you know cut it or snort it or whatever like why wouldn't you have left something like that behind so that they walk into the scene and immediately go oh yeah that makes sense. And then obviously investigate it fully, <laughs> which they didn't anyway. Right. Um, I just find it interesting that like there was nothing. So then it's like, well, so then where did it go? Did she take any traces of it with her when she left the room? And if so, then why? Because you, he had it on his face. He had it on his shirt. But the fact that it was never tested oh, says yeah. to me either, well, one of three things. One, huge misstep. Yes. Two, there was pressure not to test it from an outside source. Sure. Or three, it was tested and an outside source made sure that that part of the report never actually got made. I mean, it makes sense. Again, it's just tough and and it's it's sad because to me it's like I just don't know that we'll ever really get any full answers, which we know. I mean, again, we've we've covered, you know, cases on the show before involving the mob and and it's like you may get somewhat of an answer, but you also just may not. It takes someone from within turning on them in order for you to get a real answer. Yeah. Right? 
Yeah. I mean, my God, they took the head off of the guy who, one of the first guys to buy the the crazy horse. Yeah. Who knows where his body is? And who knows how he was killed? And you just left his head out in the middle of nowhere waiting for someone to find it. Like, that's horrifying, which again is why we'd like to not meet in person yeah. or through a letter or any of those sorts of things. There's there's plenty of room for all of us. Plenty. Plenty. Yeah. Well, listen, Christy Oxborough, amazing work as always. Again, this is a tough case. It is, a you know, obviously a very sad case. It feels like there should be more clear answers, but I think the reason it obviously ended up on the show is because there isn't. There's a lot of question marks that, again, sadly, in my a personal opinion, I just don't know that we'll ever get answered because, again, you're adding something in that is very difficult to kind of grapple with. Um, but it was amazing work on your part, nonetheless. You are too kind. I speak the truth. And I thank you, dear listeners, for joining us on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. If you haven't already, give us a follow on the socials on Instagram, Facebook, and uh, YouTube at True Crime and Cocktails, on Twitter at Not Detectives. And if you'd like a little bit more, over on Patreon, patreon.com slash Cocktails, we have bonus episodes, monthly live Q&As. You can vote in a poll every month to choose one of the episodes we cover on this uh, feed of the show. So check that out if you'd like to learn more. There's also uh, a true, true, there's so many fun things on Instagram. There's a, there's a Discord that we have. There is a pet page that we have. Uh, not Pet Detectives is our pet page. I believe uh, True Crew Discord. Is that what the Discord is? I love that I don't know. Um, <laughs> I've, I, love that, I love that you ask me and I'm like, oh, I'm. I've gone rogue. I've gone completely I, I, rogue. I did notice that. I was not prepared. Uh, well, yes, True Crew Discord. Uh, there's True Crime and Cocktails fan page and thank you. Not Detectives. Yes. Amazing. Uh, my not point pet is, detectives. Sorry, not pet detectives. My point is, there's so many everywhere. different places to uh, get involved, to spark conversation, uh, to continue uh, the conversations that we have here elsewhere with like-minded individuals. So check out all of that if you feel inclined. And of course, True Crew merch is the only place to get official True Crime and Cocktails merch. And like I said, get over there now. The holiday items are adorable, and you. Need to get them fast. Christy, do you want to tell the people about the next week, uh, next week's episode of the show? Oh. On the next True Crime and Cocktails, Unsolved Mysteries, Body in the Bay. Ooh, all right. I haven't watched that one yet, and I look forward to learning more about it. Christy, do you want to say goodnight to the people? Sorry, I'm thinking of Daddy's home too. Uh -huh. Good night, John Lithgow. I was gonna say good night, Milwaukee.